Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. This podcast invites two leaders to compare notes about how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. My first guest this time is Claire Gilmartin. She's the chief executive of the online ticketing app Trainline, which sells £3 billion worth of train and coach tickets every year across 45 markets. She's joined by Chris Hurst. He's head of the Havas Creative Network, which has 8,500 staff around the world and counts Nestle, IBM and Huawei among its clients. Leading is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search and leadership firm with more than 30 years of experience in placing people into a huge variety of organisations and groups. Find out more about their leadership services, including search, board review and executive assessment at saxbam.com. Hurst recently wrote a book entitled No Bullshit Leadership. I began the conversation asking him about how the advertising industry was adapting to a period of rapid change. All leadership is about managing change, effectively. I mean, I think all businesses, people talk about businesses existing in three phases, going up, going along, or going down. I don't think the middle phase exists. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. And what's advertising and marketing doing at the moment? Well, the good business is going forwards and the bad business is going backwards. The client spend on marketing, as a broadest sense, is actually going up. What's changing is how that spend is being spread across the various channels. Obviously, the big story being the huge growth and the rapid growth and the continued growth in most markets of digital. So uh, there is very much still a big and important market amongst client organizations for what you might call marketing services. But what we have to do is we have to adjust our businesses and the way we behave and the things we sell in order to be able to deliver that consultancy service to new channels. So what has that shift meant for Havas? That shift for Havas has meant that we've had to change. Well, I think some things change and some things stay the same in truth. I think we have to learn some new skills. So for example, I mean, digital marketing virtually didn't exist. It didn't exist 10 years ago and it really was very, very, very different even five years ago. So you have to learn new skills, etc. But I think what is as important, people like talking about the thing that's changing. But for our business, as I look at all of our businesses around the world, the things that differentiate the ones that are doing well from the ones that aren't, the businesses that are doing well from the ones that aren't, the differentiator, the difference is the quality of the leadership teams. Mm. I mean, it really is as simple as that. Where we have strong leadership teams, effective leadership teams, our businesses by and large, they do well. I mean, it doesn't matter what the client is, it doesn't matter what the campaign is, it's actually down to the, the, the people who are leading the teams on the ground. Uh, well, the leadership teams, I mean, the way our businesses grow is we grow our client base. So a key thing that the leadership teams have to do is they have to be able to effectively, you know, pitch and win more clients. Yeah. And that is a, that is an enduring truth of our business. So in that sense, it's the same. And what levers have they got to pull? There's only two. It, it's... Uh, essentially, particularly in creative agencies, mm. particularly, it's essentially talent and culture. And that's okay. always been true. Okay. Claire, you know plenty about change, but I suppose that the thing with Trainline is that you very much are the disruptor, if you like. So what does that make your biggest challenge? You're right. We are disrupting. We're, we're bringing an industry that essentially was always offline into the online world. And, and so I guess you could say we're disrupting to an extent. I think the single biggest thing, the single biggest learning for me in terms of leading through that level of disruption and change has been the importance of a solid purpose and a North Star. So inevitably, when you try to disrupt and when you take the risky path of accelerated growth, there are going to be ups and downs. And so what I found has been very important is the sound purpose, which stays constant. 
for our business, it's championing a much greener way of travelling, taking people out of cars, we hope, reducing congestion and taking people from short-haul flights into rail and coach. And that purpose holds true and is tremendously fortifying during the, the ups and the downs. And that's certainly been a key part of, I think, how uh, I've led the business over the last few years. It's interesting you say you go with the environment because I've j- jotted down, I thought that so many tech companies, their, their point of difference and their point of disruption is about cost. Yours isn't about cost because you're selling effectively. The, I think the tickets you're selling are the same that you would pay if you turned up five minutes early and got them at the ticket machine in the um, in the station. I thought your point of difference was convenience. But you're saying actually the, the, the mission is, is more about the environment. I think I think our point of difference is all of those things. Mm. Uh, you're absolutely right. If people buy online and in advance, they make a significant saving versus buying in a station on the day. And still 60% of tickets around the world are bought in the station on the day where people are paying the highest price. It's also convenience. So digitizing the ticket format from a paper ticket to a ticket on your phone reduces that annoying queue that you had to stand in when you thought the train was about to leave Mm. the station. But yes, the bigger purpose, and I think the reason I get out of bed in the morning and the reason my team come to work at Trainline is because we believe profoundly that as a generation we have to change how we travel and we simply have to take greener forms of transport, of which, of course, rail is key. Well, I know you're across 45 markets now, but is is Britain's poor old creaking rail infrastructure ready for this revolution? So I often get asked that, how the rail infrastructure and the rail sector compares UK versus the rest of Europe. And there aren't huge differences, uh, really. I mean, passenger numbers in this country have doubled over the last 15 plus years. Uh, Capacity is expanding, probably not as fast as we'd all like, but it definitely is expanding. And, you know, zooming out, we're investing in this country in infrastructure and capacity, but but so too are all other European markets. I think governments around the world have clearly identified the fact that growing capacity will take people out of yeah. cars and city centres and, and grow the use of rail. Chris, is there a similar mission at uh, Havas Creative? Is this a single unifying thing that you want all of your 8,500 people to think of when they come in every day? Yes. I mean, we, so we talk about making a meaningful difference to the lives of the people that work for us and a meaningful difference to our clients and their brands. And that's our overarching purpose. So I think there's purpose and then there's uh, being able to explain to, frankly, every individual, what it actually is that we need to do to be a successful business. Because one of the challenges you, I think you can have if you just say, well, we want to make a meaningful difference to the lives uh, of our employees and our clients' brands, you can come into work and sit at your desk and think, okay, I, I broadly understand that, but what, mm. what, what actually do I, what is my part in that? What do I need to do? And I think our business actually is is really not a complicated business. It's just very difficult to do well, is is advertising. And we really need, you know, for for our business, we've been very, very, very clear with our businesses around the world that we need to be able to do essentially two things. We need to be really, really excellent at winning pitches because that's Mm -hmm. how our business grows. And we need to have really happy, satisfied clients. And, And actually, that seems incredibly obvious. But in business, there are always... 
so many things that float around in and out of people's lives. And it's really important, I think, to, to not just talk about a long-term purpose and role and differentiate it. It's really also important to drag back to everybody and say, what are the real, mm. what are the really critical things in our business we need to do? Well? And you're good in your writings and so on at, at boiling that down. to the. I had three prongs for you, actually, the happy clients, the wind pitchers, and then the, the, well, the making the money. There's I mean, making money. Making I mean, the, the, third is make, the third is making money because actually if you, I mean, doing the first two, if you don't have to worry about making money, is pretty easy. It's the it's the making it money while you're doing in. those two. That yeah, it's, <laughs> it's making money while you're doing those two that is the challenge. So how have you? So if you talk about sort of tweaking the model or tweaking your your focus, you've only had a year, so you might right. not have tweaked had time to tweak that much. But how have you tweaked the the workforce or the the focus? Is it more the big creative stuff, or is it more driving into analytics and so on that you need to do? So the part of the business that I run, which is primarily not entirely, but primarily creative agencies, what, what we used to call advertising agencies. Yep. Data and analytics is an important tool for us, um, but it's really important, and I think some of our competitors do get a bit confused between the tool and the product. It is not the product of creative agencies. There are agencies within the marketing services spectrum where that is the product. For us, our product is to be able to deliver business-changing creative solutions. And in that sense, I actually possibly am even old-fashioned in my views that actually that is what our businesses do. And we've essentially recommitted back to how, you know, the best businesses in our sector ultimately are truly creative cultures. And I think I think within the sector a lot, the word creativity gets used almost to describe the sector rather than to to differentiate the sector from other parts mm. of market services rather than to describe what we are. And so we've been very clear about what we need to do is recommit back to really creating true creative culture. And that's actually a very difficult thing to do. I mean, mm. you know, cre- creativity is a very intangible, difficult thing. And, and one of the challenges as a leader is there's no point just standing up in front of a business saying, if we could just all be a bit more creative now, please, could you just try harder? I mean, people are already trying hard. What you have to do is try and understand the, and remove either understand, remove barriers or understand the ways sure. you can help in order to get to that. It's a bit like the word innovation. It's like that sort of haggis chasing across the moor, mm. isn't it? We've all seen it, but we're not quite sure mm. what, you know, what it looks like. Claire, what does creativity mean at Trainline? Well, I, I completely agree with the points made. I think, you know, bringing an offline industry into online has, by necessity, required lots of creativity and uh, uh, lots of creative problem solving. A train line, one of the key ingredients, I think, for that creativity is the diversity of the team. So when I started, I don't know, six years ago, we had a largely UK-British team, actually 75% male at the time. And that clearly wasn't a diverse group and it was not probably the right group to tackle what then became a significant expansion out across 40 countries. And so over the last few years, one of my jobs has been to diversify the team. We now have over 40 different nationalities. We're nearly 40% women. We have people from all different backgrounds. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence that proves, really, that a diverse team is going to develop better creative solutions. Mm. And that's absolutely been our experience. Do you think it's easier for you as a female leader to you know, say we must diversify or do you think male leaders will do that just as well? I don't think it's any easier for me. I think I believe very deeply that a diverse team can be harder to form and gel together because Mm. they don't have oftentimes the starting natural social bonds that a more homogenous team might have. But absolutely in the medium to long run, a diverse team makes sure we don't have blind spots Mm. 
a diverse team thinks through all the possible solutions mm. and ultimately we get to better outcomes. Chris, what, what have you done on the diversity front? Well, that's a big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> the first thing that you need to do if you want to make change, and we do, we, we did recognise, so I joined Havas uh, in the UK initially yep. four years ago, and we needed to make change about many aspects of our business, by the way, at that point. It, the first thing to do is to be honest about where you are, whatever challenge you're trying to solve, right? Mm. I mean, have an honest conversation about where you are. So we did that. And we went through a fairly simple but important process of honestly just collecting some data. Where, where are we? I mean, it's not easy to necessarily understand how diverse you are just by sitting at your desk and looking around. And then we had to try and define where we wanted to get to. And again, with diversity, that's actually quite a difficult question to answer because diversity doesn't stop. I mean, there's all sorts of different sorts of diversity that go way beyond just how people look or, or, or um, you know, what gender they are. So we looked at where we were and we set ourselves some targets that we chose two areas in the first instance. But I think there are many, as I said, there's many other aspects of diversity. One related to women, women, female representation within the business. And second, ethnic minority representation to the business so actually advertising is is a total workforce by and large predominantly female so we are typical of the industry that we're about 56 percent roughly female and that stays pretty consistent right up until the top quartile in the company and then that drops away and we have a lot more men at the top of the business so but the point i say that is actually to start to fix a problem you actually have to get quite granular and really understand specific mm. points and i don't think there's silver bullets to a com well there isn't silver bullets to mm. a question as complicated as diversity mm. you have to really kind of get into the weeds a bit and and develop very specific strategies to try and um, achieve your objectives. I want to go, go back. This is a different way of looking at diversity. I've always thought with advertising, the industry, uh, quite tribal, not necessarily tribal between agencies, although you do have that. And I think the networks are trying to break that down a bit and you know work, work together. And I think that's part of part of your role. But the idea that the the creatives don't always see eye to eye with the, with the money men and so on. I think that's something that you're smiling, which isn't great for audio. But the point being that, and I think you've made this, one of your comments, removing obstacles to creativity while making sure you're hard-nosed about making money. So that's something for everyone in that statement, but harder harder to put into practice, I guess. It is and it isn't. I mean, the, the reality of our business is we are about commercial creativity. Our business makes money. The thing we deliver for our clients sure. is about the marriage of how how creativity is used to solve not just in an abstract i can come up with some good ideas but used to solve a specific problem mm. that's the trick mm. the, it's funny the money men so i'll tell you as a short anecdote once at a previous agency we decided we were going to get rid of departments boundaries and seating plans and we were going to be all modern and we we're just going to write everybody's just going to mash everybody up and everybody's just going to you know sit wherever they want and this was it made a huge difference some some positive differences maybe some less so and and as it happened as the cards fell we had a Swedish creative team sitting next to the CFO, which amused everybody for about three days. And after about three days, uh, <laughs> both parties agreed that that wasn't working for anybody. So the, the money, they need, we need to cohabit. But I, I don't think it's an unbridgeable tension. It's part of our business. And of course, part of your job every day, I guess. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's that is essentially what our business is. Claire, how would you describe your management style? Gosh, uh, that's always a tough no one likes that question. answer, isn't it? I could go on for hours. Or, uh, I'll try to be brief. You know, I think I learned very early on that an important part of my management style was going to be to be authentic. When I became a manager first, I spent 10 years at eBay before Trainline. 
I was one of the most senior women in a global tech company, and dare I say it, one of the only women really in a global tech company. And so out of the gate as a new manager, I think I tried to emulate some of my male colleagues and some of my behaviours. And lo and behold, the feedback I got was not particularly positive from the people I was leading because it was very inauthentic. And so I learned the hard way, really, in the early, early days that I had to bring myself to work and I had to be authentic. And I think that sort of grounded, connected management and leadership approach has has stuck with me. I think you have to build very trusting relationships in order to make sure that people speak honestly to you. So that's that's a very important part, I think, of how I try to manage. That said, I'm definitely very driven. Sometimes I wish I could turn it off for a day or two. And I set ambitious goals and, and I definitely keep a strong momentum in a business because I think, in t- certainly in tech, things move fast. You've got to move fast. You've got to innovate fast. You've got to be, you know, what's what's great tech and user experience this week will be outdated by next week. And so I definitely, I think, drive a, a swift momentum in the business. To paraphrase, I think when you came in at eBay, you were, you were saying you, you, you were trying to emulate the men. Yes. Do you see women now in your organisation or other organisations who are coming up still trying to do that? Or are we, are we past the moment where to get on, women feel they need to try and, and, and lead how men lead? Look, I think the attitudinal side of diversity and inclusion is the tougher nut to crack, unquestionably. But I think we're definitely making progress. We are definitely making progress. I think things like unconscious bias training, whilst it sounds cliched, it's been very helpful in just the day-to-day behaviours um, and making sure that minorities, and as you quite rightly said, it's not just gender or or nationality or background, but making sure minorities can bring themselves to work and can speak authentically and don't feel like they have to emulate others. But I would definitely not say we're done. Mm. There's, there's still, you know, I have to be conscious of it every day. I'm sure I don't get it right every day, mm. um, but it's something we, we want. We know, I know, you get the best out of people when they think they can be themselves, mm. when they're relaxed and they think more clearly. And so part of my job is always to try to create an environment where everybody can thrive, regardless of who they are. Mm. And Chris, what about your style? I'm glad you answered that first. You've had, you've uh, but, had but three they, minutes but, to warm up to this. But the three minutes didn't help me in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> because what's interesting I, I about both listen, of you... I made the mistake of starting listening to your answer rather than actually think about my own. Because I think that what, what I think many leaders will have in common, but you, Sue, certainly do, you took that first leadership role, I think, around 30, 32. So mm. similar age, similar development stage in your career. So you could give the same answer. I agree. <laughs> uh, I suppose I try and be clear and I mean that sounds again obvious but it's not always that easy to do I try and be consistent and I don't just mean consistent in things I say I try and be consistent in terms of how I behave I think it's important to be predictable I agree with the authenticity point absolutely and I and I suppose I don't think I can do better than that I mean I I find it Definitely, I don't find talking about myself very easy in that regard, that's Mm. for sure. I try and focus on creating environments where the people around me can perform at their best, which I think is what you were just saying. And that's, you know, I I think we talk a lot about in in businesses, in organizations, we talk a lot about whether somebody is good or not, whether that, you know, in in, in broad terms. Mm. And I think what uh, I think what actually we need to do is we need to ask ourselves before we are even able to have a point of view on that question. We need to ask ourselves two other questions. The first is, is that person clear what they're being asked to do? 
often people aren't. And secondly, are they trying to do that in an environment that gives them a, a maximum chance of succeeding? Often they aren't. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's not quite an answer to the question, but, but what I try and do is help everybody answer those two questions or at least exist in an environment where they succeed and be clear what they're trying to do. No, I think that was fine. I think you got away with it. There we go. Yeah, sort, of, <laughs> sort of did that old, you know, that old exam answer. So, well, I'm going to just sort of skirt it a little bit. Well, if it was a newspaper column, yeah. you could do well on the one hand yeah, exactly. and then on the other hand exactly. and then, you know, exactly. the conclusion. Yeah. Claire, you alluded to growing fast, and this is a this is a classic thing in the te in the tech industry. You know, move fast and break things. You've got to go as fast as you can. But when you do that, do you worry about going too fast, about losing you know losing something off the side of the cart, like culture or something else? Because you're growing at twenty percent a year. Yeah, and 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 look, we've been through a, a rapid phase of expansion over the last few years. And as I said, a company that aspires to grow fast definitely takes inherently a riskier path. I think what I've realized over the years, it can't always be about the targets next week and next month. Whilst they are important, this notion of the ever-present sort of North Star purpose mm. is very helpful when you're trying to move that quickly. I think having the right people to do the roles is critical. And it's not always, you know, the right people today might not necessarily be the right people in, in three years' time. When you're growing a company, you're going through very different phases of complexity pretty fast. And so making sure, and it's one of the questions I ask myself every week, making sure we have the right people for the job today and the job over the next couple of years is is critical. Mm. And then you're right, culture is important. Diversity obviously helps innovation, uh, making people feel comfortable. I don't mean comfortable in the in the super relaxed sense, but making fe people feel like they can be authentic and work and bring their ideas to mm. the table definitely helps mm. innovation. A results focused helps the momentum and helps us move fast. But you also need an underlying trust amongst people who work with each other. There isn't the time to beat around the bush when you're moving fast. You have to you have to create a condition and a trusting relationship so that people can be honest and direct with each other without there being relationship fallout. Uh, and so that's definitely been something that we've um, we've had to learn to to really build. So ability to speak fast. and put your hand up and talk and... and yeah, and yeah. just be direct and not yeah. beat around the bush and just move fast, be direct, be honest, but not break relationships in the yeah. process. I was just going to say, I, just to build on that point very briefly, I, I actually think in an effective culture, and by the way, I, I, think, I think all organisations have a culture, whether they have the culture they want is a separate point. But, mm. but, but, but I think to have an effective culture, it's critical that people actually can can actually row with each other sometimes. I mean, mm. people need to be able to really um, have passionate arguments with each other without falling out, mm. without feeling like their sense of value or they're being disrespected. It's, it's my ideas that you can disagree with rather than, rather than me. And, and not only is that help you solve problems as you were describing but but the the corollary that or the flip side to that is if you don't that's when you get politics that's when you get people being dissatisfied when people go around the back and i think it's a i think it's re, it's a really healthy thing in a culture chris i want to ask you about the gray years uh, so you were uh, they had to come up so you 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 went to gray in 2010 i think no i joined gray in 2003 okay and, and then, then i became ceo of gray in 2010 and i paraphrase but i think for a time it wasn't going well uh, yeah. and then it was well yeah so the the i'll try and do it quickly but i i joined in 2003 as part of a turnaround team let's say so there was five of us uh within so i was the managing director i worked for the ceo 
Um, within six months, he'd left. I'm doing air quotes there. He well, hadn't the, left. <laughs> well, he wasn't. He wasn't <laughs> in the business anymore. Let's let's say that. Um, and sort of that left the the four of us. And, and Gray, at that point that we joined, was a failing business. Our task was to try and fix that business. Over the next six years, effectively, the other three went uh, left and went off and did, and now all have sparklingly successful careers, hugely successful careers, in and around the industry. Um, but for a variety of reasons, I didn't. But it got to 2009. I'd been passed over twice to be CEO, got to 2009, and by that point, I really had reached the conclusion that I'd pretty effectively screwed my career, bluntly. I mean, you I stayed joined, too long. I stayed too long. Honestly, I was too scared to leave. I hadn't got the courage to go and take a step. I, uh, you know, I joined to be part of the solution after six years. If you haven't made some progress, you are part of the problem. And Gray, and, uh, and Gray we should say, is a, is a famous, long-standing yes. ad agency. Creative almost agency. like a classic creative yes. agency. In yes. The, yeah. yes, a WPP. And so then what happened? Well, I, I, I sort of got a bit lucky. I mean, again, the short version of it is I persuaded them to pay for me to go to do the advanced management program at Harvard, which is an eight-week program, which absolutely no exaggeration changed my life. And it, it changed my life not because of some big thing I went, some big facts I went and learned, you know, because I, you know, it changed my life because I I realised I could walk into a room of, there was about 80 people in the on the class, and none of us had any knowledge about the others at all. So we could walk in and literally we were disconnected from all the things that normally anchor us to a sense of who we are, our family, our friends, our job. And you could just walk into the room and be anybody. I mean, I could walk into the room and say, yeah, I'm the CEO of this incredibly successful agency that I turned around, right? Which none of which was true. Um, and but, hope they didn't Google uh, you. Well, yeah, well, like, but it was 2010, so I think it was probably a bit harder in those days. <laughs> but that, that experience of realising that a lot of what holds us back are stories in our own heads was absolutely transformational experience for me. And you came back and, we'll come on to the book, but became a better leader. Well, became the leader and became... Yes, I, ca I came back. Actually, I came back with a clear and utter determination to leave. Um, that's what I came back believing. Um, but for, again, this is where the luck comes in a little bit. I was actually then within six months, I got the opportunity and I was offered the job of being CEO of Grey. Put it all into practice and... Well, we what I put it all into practice, I mean, I didn't really have things. It's not like I sat down and thought, I'm really uh, clear what I am going to do. I remember thinking, actually, I'm really clear what I'm not going to do. And actually, the, then the six years of, frankly, failure on my behalf, what I was determined was that I wasn't going to remake all those mistakes that I'd seen made uh, yep. over the preceding six yep. years. Claire, have you had any, have you been beneficiary of any luck through your career, through your leadership? I try to steer clear of the luck thing because I think women especially will often attribute any kind of career growth and success to luck. I'd say where I was lucky is in the people who I've met along the way. One of my first bosses at eBay, was, who then became my chairman at uh, Trainline, was Doug McCallum. And from day zero in that job, he made me feel very much like I belonged and gave me the confidence, I think, to speak up. Often, as I said, in the, in the tech world in the early 2000s, the only mm. woman in the room, but yet I had the confidence mm. to speak up. So meeting him was definitely hugely formative and very helpful. Mm. And then I think maybe we're going to come on to talk about mentors later, but 
various mentors along the way have have just given me very very sage and sound advice and it's not necessarily that I ever set out to look and collect a set of mentors I just think I've met some really very helpful mm. people along the way you've talked about eBay but that first I think it was your first leadership role in 2003 you came in to run eBay Motors now I'm interested in that because I don't think eBay was very big in motors at that time and eBay itself obviously was a sketch so you're effectively it's a startup within quite a big business yeah that that was a huge uh, I think leadership learning for me I had never bought a car I didn't know anything about cars and yet I was brought in to lead eBay Motors doesn't it come up in the interview actually I was hired this is the pace of tech in the early 2000s and probably still so I was hired for a different job entirely so it was the first day of my job I was told no no, it's going to be head of motors I called up 40 dealers from my desk over the course of two weeks and asked them how eBay was working for them and what needed to change. And I found out through those calls that A, I could use my Irish accent to uh, somewhat extract more information. But I also found out that the business model we were using was the wrong business model. And actually it left dealers with a legal liability. Mm. So we changed the business model and the business grew 10x. And it was all, it, it was my lesson in never get too big or too ivory tower to speak directly to customers and hear what it is that they want. Do you think you wouldn't have found out so much if you'd have asked asked someone to do that in your team? Well, You had to be on the front line. I connected to it emotionally. I think my team probably uh, did it a little bit as well, but but by me talking directly, I connected to the emotional need. And interestingly, we looked at the data, and the data said dealers came on, they, you know, traded for a bit, and then they churned off. But no one could explain why they churned off. And it was only the the calls that helped us understand this. Mm. Anyway, I think ever, ever since, I always try to prioritize time with customers myself, not just reading charts or reading research reports, but mm. actually sitting in front of customers mm. and hearing firsthand what works and what doesn't. Mm. Not only does it give you great insight, but it also gives you a sort of a fire and a motivation to to improve things. I guess you must agree, Chris, you've got to stick close to the customer, the client. Yep. Tell me about the... So post-Harvard, the book you put out, No Bullshit Leadership, in part inspired by, I guess, your career, the changes in your career, and you've already alluded to the clarity, the sort of like, it's 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 three points and let's not beat around the bush. Uh, but why did you feel you wanted to put that down on paper? I think, uh, well, I can tell you that there's a spe- there was a specific catalyst, and, and, and the catalyst was I was asked to do a presentation on leadership, you know, as we are from time to time, you know, it's a sort of a 20 minutes and, you know, and as often we don't admit, but often is the case, about a day and a half before you think, oh, I've got to do a presentation today and I'll better sit down and write something. And at about the same time, I discovered that I was one of three people who'd been given the same brief on leadership and we each had 20 minutes and I was in the middle. And immediately then I thought, oh, okay, this has become competitive. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I have to think of something to say that I think might not just be the same as the people are going to proceed and follow me. So so that was the sort of the the start point of it. And I suppose I did that presentation and and thought, well, I wonder if there's a a book in this. Mm. Partly, I so that's the... I suppose the rational reason. I mean, really, I I like the idea of writing a book. It was a, it was a challenge. I like a challenge. I didn't know that I could get a book out of it. I thought, well, I'll try and see whether I can get ten thousand words. You know, I thought, is it is it a sort of a long essay, uh, or can I turn it into a book? And um, yeah, I sort of went from there. And actually, I I have to say, I 
I really, really enjoyed. I mean, I quite enjoy writing, so I, I enjoyed the process of doing it as well. And did you find people that you've you've met over your career fed in, or was this all was this all straight from you, straight from the heart, straight from the head? Well, indirectly, everybody yes, that I've met. met through my career and every experience I've had in my career has. Yeah, has contributed to it. Yeah, Claire, we are going to get onto mentors. You're absolutely right because you've read read the notes very carefully. So not just any mentor, though. We must talk about the Baroness Gail Reebok. Yes. Oh no, she's a dame. Yes. Uh, as I said, I've I've had a, a few mentors along the way who've been hugely helpful. And I think the the bottom line is talking to people who've been down the road ahead of you. Just generally, I think very wise advice. I met Gail towards the end of my tenure at eBay. And I probably had, much like you spoke about a minute ago, I probably, after close to 10 years in one company, I probably had a bit of fear about shaking it all up uh, and going elsewhere. And she's very straight-talking, and she just told me to get on with this uh, and move. I took my role at Trainline as the CEO when the mission was to IPO the business pretty much as soon as I was in the door, and I was five months pregnant. Um, And so I remember saying to Gail, you know, if I do this, I will have to take, I don't know, three or four weeks maternity leave and I'll be in the middle of an IPO process. And she said, oh, for goodness sake, when I had kids, there was no maternity leave. And she was just tremendously helpful. It sort of grounded me and it it normalised, I think, what I was doing. And, you know, that ended up being one of the best, if not the best, career decisions I've ever made. And I remember that very well because you were heading towards, still heading into... IPO before KKR came and did the private equity deal and uh, you did the interview in the Sunday Times and there's a big photo of you and you're shaking your head but it it was a real I just thought it was a real moment you know there was a you know it was a good moment there was a woman obviously pregnant in this business interview slot in the Sunday Times and that kind of said well well show that what Gayla said had taken effect and that you can do anything if you if you put your mind to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've always been a bit feisty and bloody minded about the notion that unquestionably we need more women in leadership roles, be it politics or business, balanced teams deliver better outcomes. So I've always felt as part of this generation, I have to do my bit. As it happened, I don't think I choreographed it this way, but doing my bit ended up being leading an IPO when I was pregnant. But I twisted it on its head, or at least in my own head, I said, you know, these investors probably see a bunch of similar people over the course of a week and they will absolutely remember Trainline because I'm the only one who was eight months pregnant. <laughs> and I made a joke out of it. Uh, Chris, what about your mentors? Who, who's helped you along the way? Uh, I get asked that question quite a lot, actually, and I, I never come up with any very good answers. I sort of don't have somebody like who you've just described and I feel like... I've missed out, honestly. When I hear people talk about, because some people do, I mean, you particularly talk with real passion about about it. And I feel like there's a lot, I mean, look, by the way, I mean, there's lots of people I've learned from, clearly. I mean, I'm not saying that. But I can't say that there's somebody who I would really put my finger on and say that person has been a real a real mentor a real sounding board for me. And, and I do miss it in a way, well, I do, because I think leadership can be quite lonely, not well lonely and also often if not continuously disorientating to an extent because you're always operating in a 
context of imperfect information and shifting sands. And so not only is it nice and helpful, uh, reassuring, whatever it is, to be able to go and just talk to somebody who can, you can just bounce ideas around with, it's also, I think, really helpful sometimes to be able to go and talk to somebody who's outside of the, the specific environment you're in. Mm. And as you were just describing, can sort of pull it apart into its most fundamental constituent parts and help you go through it. And honestly, sometimes just give you that kick up the backside and confidence and make you believe. So, mm. you talk you talk about everyday leaders. Is mm. that leaders throughout an organisation, mm. or is it the people at the top just doing it simply? No, it it, it is people through uh, throughout an organisation. I mean, my my fundamental argument is that vast majority of leaders, as I, certainly as I define them, are not CEOs, generals, dot com billionaires. My definition in the book is anybody that has people they're responsible for is a leader, and that whether that's two people or whether that's 30,000 people. And we all, we kind of all start small. And I think what, what that means that across us, this in the UK, by that definition, there's hundreds of thousands of people in leadership positions. And as we've said various points through this conversation, we need more better leaders. Mm. And, I, and I think there's a, because one of the consequences of there being a lot of bullshit around the subject, in my opinion, and a lot of what we're told is snake oil. I think that has two consequences. First of all, it inhibits people from fulfilling their potential. And second of all, potentially even worse than that, it excludes whole chunks of society from believing leadership is ever something that they could aspire to. So the, the concept of everyday leaders is that, you know, you, there already are many, many, many more people who are leaders than we think uh, there are. And guess what? Um, you know, we need an awful lot more of them in all walks of life. And they just need to recognise themselves as so. Well, recognise, and actually I think, and, and the intention, the ambition of the book, rather a grand ambition, I suppose, is to try and then help some of those people fulfil their potential and ambitions. Mm. Claire, what's changed after the since the IPO? You've, you've brought the company onto the stock market. You've sw- swapped one very attentive shareholder for, for many, many shareholders. But what about for you and the team? You've all made a lot of money out of this. Has it at all changed your view, your approach or your drive? Uh, This is, I think, where I come back to the purpose. We're all there because we believe passionately that we have to champion a much greener form of travel. Sure. I often say to my team, you know, when I stand back, when I look back 30 years from now, which I hope I can, and if we have driven a significant modal shift out of car and uh, short-haul air into rail and coach, I will be proud and you will be proud. And that stuff is a, is is just a constant. It's 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 very normalising. And so, actually, I get asked the question pre and post IPO a lot. Uh, the benefit of being post IPO is that everyone in the company is now a shareholder, and that mm. was always one of my objectives, really, about bringing the company to the stock market. So we are all in the same boat. Uh-huh. But honestly, our day job hasn't changed. It continues to be as it was before. And are they different? Are the people in your top team? Do you, you, you know? Do you, do you look at each other differently around the table? Because there are some life changing amounts of money for for many in the company. I, I imagine. Well, it's interesting you ask that. I said about, obviously I retained some of the folks who predate me at Trainline, but I also set about adding to the team when Uh I joined. And really my vision was that I was going to find real masters and, and top performers in some of the tech companies, the best tech companies around the world, because they had operated at the scale that we were headed towards. But I was also looking for people who had humility and who didn't have egos mm. because to step back in scale, even if it's temporarily, you can't have an ego. And so where we've arrived at, I think, today, and it's an ongoing focus, is I do think we have a very smart team of high achievers, but there's very little ego. 
Mm. Uh, and there's a, a real groundedness and a humility. And I love that. Mm. I absolutely love that. These people mm. have achieved amazing things, but you would never know it. And I suppose you see that as a success of your five, six years there. You've, you've created the team you wanted. Yeah, I think an amazing team that consistently beats expectations, but that is low ego, can partner well with all of the train companies and the bus companies we work with mm. around the world and have the humility to never think they know it all. Mm. Chris, what, do you worry about reputation? Do you worry about what people think of you? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think they think? Of yes, you? I do. Uh, I, I think I should worry about it less. I think it's an extraordinarily liberating thing to not worry, to be able to not worry what people think about you. Mm. What was the what was the follow up? Sorry, what? what is about whether it's your reputation as a leader, your reputation mm. in the organisation that you're you're sat on top of? Do the eight and a half thousand people discuss you at the coffee machine? I hesitate to answer that publicly. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether they do or not. I mean, I I suppose. I think if you're in a leadership position, look, by definition, if you're in a leadership position and doing a good job as a leader, you have to be having an impact on people's, you have to be having an impact on the people's working lives, or at least the lives that, where they come into contact mm. with you. And I think it's quite tempting quite often. In fact, a lot of the literature, etc., that you read about leadership spends an awful lot of time talking about you as a leader. But I, I think actually a leader... Lead, it's about everybody else except you, uh, really, leadership. Mm. It's about the ability for you to impact on the lives of the people around you and when they're mm. working with you or mm. whatever organisation you're in. Okay, and what else have I missed, Claire? You've got um, more notes than I have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I thought about coming here today, I think one of the questions you had asked us was, what was your biggest challenge? And unquestionably, the biggest challenge for me as a leader has been resilience and looking after my own well-being. Your personal resilience. Yes, yeah. and looking after my own personal well-being. And interestingly, when I canvassed advice from people on my way into a CEO role, no one really mentioned well-being. Uh, as I now mentor plenty of other folks, it's the first thing I mention. As a leader, you're the person people look to, obviously less so in times of, in, in the ops, more so in the downs. Mm. And so it's incredibly important that you continuously invest in your own well-being such that you can lead through ups and downs. And so, you know, over the last few years, I've actually taken to yoga. I'm terrible at it, but it's tremendously helpful to my mm. own well-being. And I've realized that my own well-being is not something that only gets looked after if everything else has been done that week, because that never happens. And rather, it's something I have to put to the top of the agenda, mm. um, because if I'm not... Yeah, in a good place it has impact now on many many hundreds of people and so I think it's one of the things that doesn't get spoken about enough mm -hmm. in the context of great leadership okay Chris I read in, in your notes that uh, time out for you involves having a coffee and reading the paper so a man after my own heart <laughs> yes. that sounds like a wonderful morning <laughs> it's a perfect morning I mean that's yeah exactly but doing yoga at the same time <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly low, a low very low maintenance and a tea tea and a paper that's perfect great Chris Hurst and Claire Gilmartin thanks so much for the conversation thank you Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. You can also find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, including a conversation with Kate Maver, the chief executive of English Heritage. Here she is explaining the spending decisions behind preserving Stonehenge, Dover Castle, Hadrian's Wall and other historic gems. Previously, the way we assessed the sites was basically working out what it would cost to 
deal with every single defect we could find. And so you're faced with this huge bill which you're never going to get on top of. And I draw the comparison with other charities, you know, who might have the aim of ending poverty or bringing clean water to every Mm. village. The job's never done. And, you know, that I feel quite comfortable about that. We'll never have everything absolutely in tip-top repair from that point of view. But to prioritise, we need to start with the basics. What is the most historically significant element of this big site? Because that's what Mm. we're looking after. It's unique. It's not replicated anywhere else. So that has to come first. Mm.